This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rob Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. We're still very excited to be able to come back to you after an unplanned hiatus due to the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. After the initial weeks of the global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors. And in the coming weeks, we'll be providing you with the audio of these interviews. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcast, but they still contain the great content that you've come to expect. Today, our author is the number one New York Times bestselling creator of over 30 works in the international thriller genre, James Rollins. We spoke with him via Zoom in April of 2020 about his book, The Last Odyssey, by publisher HarperCollins. Two books a year for the last 20 years is how this practicing veterinarian has spun off his interest in writing into a full-blown successful literary career. And his signature series of books, Sigma Force, has taken up the largest area of focus for his writing. In The Last Odyssey, as usual, he draws inspiration from his fondness for myths and stories from around the world. This time, the Abrahamic religions caught his attention, and he was driven by their views of the end times. What different cultures over the years, how have they envisioned how the world was going to end? And I found out that there was a lot of commonality, especially in, in the Western religions between Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam, that they share a very a lot of crossover between what they believe the end of the world is going to look like. So it's a it's a disturbing and interesting. So this book sort of sheds a little bit of light on the origin and the dangers of, of looking and trying to drive towards an apocalypse. And in this interactive virtual interview, we'll learn more about his newest book, his coming work, his process for writing, and some more about his many, many interests. Author James Rollins is our guest this time on this edition of Talking With Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, the author events coordinator for the St. Louis County Library, Carrie Robb. All right, so I know a lot of our viewers are very familiar with our series, but in case there's anyone out there who is not, um, can you tell us a little bit about the series? Who is Sigma Force and what do they do? Well, Sigma Force is a, um, they're a team. They're former Special Forces soldiers that were drummed out of the service for various reasons. But because of special aptitude or skill or talents, they were secretly recruited by DARPA, the Defense Department's Research and Development Agency. They're retrained in various scientific disciplines, become uh, field agents for DARPA. And uh, so they go and protect the, you know, the globe, the U.S., against various types of emerging threats. Uh, as I've jokingly referred to them, they're basically the scientists with guns, for lack of a better term. Right. Um, so there's 15 books in the series. Do people need to start at the beginning and work through the series or can they start with this new one or just anywhere in the series? Oh, no, I think very few people besides myself have read the books in order. Um, yeah. I always I enjoy series, but I, I always resent when I'm like on the fifth book of a series and I can't remember what happened in book one, two, three, and four. So I engineered my novel so that no matter when you were hopping in, any backstory you needed, I was going to, I was going to seed into the story so that, uh, 
you're not going to feel lost. Now, yes, of course, you read this, the series in, in order. There's a nuance of character arc that you'll appreciate, but definitely not necessary. I think most people have found me airport bookstore or somewhere along the lines. They pull me off a shelf and hopefully the cover copy interests them. They read the book if they like it. Hopefully they'll go back and fill in the blanks. But uh, definitely if you want to join in, you can just hop in right with Last Odyssey and not feel lost. Great. So these books, I know they combine um, a lot of scientific exploration and historical research and then adventure too. Um, and this new book, The Last Odyssey, takes a lot from Homer's classic, The Odyssey. Um, right. Why did you choose that book? And where did you go with that story in your own? Well, you know, a lot of my books in the past, and this, this newest uh, included, is I'm always looking for those hidden truths you know, that are you know, buried or, or secreted away. But oftentimes those truths are revealed through story, through mythology. I always think there's maybe a, you know, a, some hidden truth, some seed of uh, uh, knowledge in those ancient stories. So, you know, I've dabbled with that in various books in the past. And you know, one of the biggest epics of mythology is Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And that was always in my little idea folder. I knew eventually I would, you know, try to look more deeply into that, into that, into those stories. But I didn't know my, I didn't know the, how to, what the entry point was going to be. And then again, I've always got my antenna up for some cool bit of science or a bit of history. And I found out from reading the article in, I believe it was New Science Magazine, there was a, uh, a British management consultant. So not an archaeologist, just a, a guy that had an interest in all things mytholo mythological. And he was studying clues in Homer's Iliad and matching them to, to new geological tools out there, like Google Earth or Google Maps, and began to piece together where he believed uh, Odysseus, the hero of the Odyssey, his hometown was, the, was the, the town of Ithaca. But there actually is a real place called Ithaca in Greece, but it doesn't match the description in the, in the book. So everybody thought Ithaca was just a made-up place that somebody named that town, the current town, after the Odyssey wasn't the true location. And so, you know, he presented a paper laying out his, 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 his proposition of why he believed this place was on the uh, peninsula of Palika in Greece was the hometown of Ithaca. And then archaeologists went and they studied his data and they said, yeah, we believe you're right. That actually matches it to a T. So all of a sudden, you know, this mythic place of Ithaca had a real, real uh, location. Now I had known the same was true for Troy. Now, for the longest period of time, everybody thought Troy was a mythic place, a made-up place. And for the longest period of time, everybody thought it was just fictional. Until in the late 19th century, again, another armchair archaeologist, uh, a gentleman named Heinrich Schliemann, uh, was excavating along the Turkish coast, uh, exposed some ruins that he believed was Troy. Again, it took a, little, it took a few decades, but eventually archaeologists concurred, yes, that was Troy. So within a matter of you know, a moment, all of a sudden, mythology became history. So here we had now, you know, in the past, we already knew Troy was a real location. And just recently, now we found Ithaca is a real location. So the, the gist of the Odyssey is Odysseus voyaging from the end of the Trojan War in Troy and trying to get home to Ithaca. So now the starting place and the end place of the Odyssey seem to be uh, real locations. So then I got thinking as a thriller writer, well, how many other spots in between that starting place and the end spot might also be true? And so I began doing research and, and began sort of snowballing this ability to tell a story based on the, the truth hidden behind 
the mythology of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Hmm. Great. So your research also took you to Iceland too, correct? Correct. Because I, I knew the story needed a starting, my story needed a starting point. And the, the gist of this novel is that there is a um, centuries old medieval ship that's found buried two miles, I'm sorry, half a mile under the ice of, Antar of uh, Greenland. Because of the melt that's occurring in Greenland, it gets exposed. Uh, some researchers go in to examine the, the ship. And in the ship's hole, they discover this sort of clockwork gold map that's ticking along that seems to be pointing towards the location of the mythic land of Tartarus, which is the Greek version of hell, which is also featured in Homer's Odyssey. At one point, Odysseus goes to the gates of Tartarus, the gates of hell. So then I, you know, my goal then was to try to find that gates of hell. So I'm trying to think of where that might be located. Well, I did a trip to Iceland, which also was experiencing a major um, melting and loss of glaciers. And when I was there was a time they were actually bookmarking and commemorating uh, the uh, a glacier that completely evaporated, completely disappeared and melted away. So knowing I was always thinking about this melting of Greenland, that became sort of the crux of, of where I wanted to start the story. And I had, vis I had visited um, a hot spring called the Blue Lagoon. And it's sort of a, sort of a cool place to start the story. So I, I dumped two of my major characters right there in that hot spring and begin the story there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the book also talks about some apocalyptic cults. And you did some research into that. What did you learn about those groups? Well, it goes back to the same interest I have in mythology and religion and storytelling as a way of understanding the world. And being that this was going to be a sort of an apocalyptic story, I thought, well, what are the common views of the end of the world? How many, you know, what different cultures over the years, how have they envisioned how the world was going to end? And I found out that there was a lot of commonality, especially in, in the Western religions between Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam, that they share a very, a lot of crossover between what they believe the end of the world is going to look like. And so I, I began to look a little bit deeper, and I discovered that, you know, not only that there's a, certain groups that are, are looking to um, use those clues in the Bible or in uh, the Torah uh, for clues on, on how the world's going to end and, and possibly that we're in the end times right now. And not only that, are we in the end times, that maybe we should um, help those end times along and try to, try to reach those end times, which is disturbing. You know, I'm, I'm not in any hurry to see the end of the world, especially considering what's going on right now. And I discovered that uh, even in, in Islam, the, uh, the current president and the supreme leader of, of Islam are also what are uh, the 12th there Believers of the Twelvers, they believe the Twelfth Imam is due to arrive on Earth, which would herald the end of the world. So even they believe that we're in the beginning of the end times. Uh, so it's a it's a disturbing and, and interesting. So this book sort of sheds a little bit of light on the origin where they're beheaded uh, and the dangers of, of looking and trying to drive towards an apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, especially relevant right now with the way we're all feeling. I'm sure. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. at this point, you know, we have uh, you know, you know, plague of locusts across Africa. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got uh, uh, this current plague. So it just makes you wonder. Oh, maybe, maybe we are in those end times. Yeah. Hopefully not. 
So the book, um, there's also this idea in it of World War Zero, which I had never heard about before, but there's some historical truth to that, right? Or some fact oh, that you I mean, there, there's definitely a, a real event. Um, again, me being a thriller writer, I'm always looking for those, those historical mysteries, those pieces mm-hmm. of history that end in a question mark, something mm-hmm. I can solve within the pages of a novel. And so uh, in researching this novel and researching the, the story behind uh, the Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, those stories take place during uh, a time called the Greek Dark Ages. Sometimes that period is called the Homeric Age because the only account of that, of basically three centuries, is Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Very little is written. Most, most things were destroyed during that period of time. So there's a little, very little written record of it. And why, that, why there's such a little uh, record is that there was a major war that occurred across the breadth of the Mediterranean. Uh, during that war, uh, some unknown civilization, some unknown force, enemy, arrived in the Mediterranean and wiped out uh, three major civilizations that were, were thriving very strongly. They knocked out the, the Mycenaean Greeks, it knocked out the Anatolian Hittites, and it knocked out the Egyptians. They were brought basically to their knees, and because they were brought so low, uh, that's what created that dark space, that dark spot in history is that... Uh, you know, all the ability to, to, to maintain and, and write and record uh, disappeared. Right. But what is not known and why that world, that, that great cataclysm, that great battle was called World War Zero, is that at that point, you know, the known world was the breadth of the Mediterranean. So uh, a war that was occurring across the breadth of the Mediterranean was a world war. So some historians began dubbing it World War Zero, the first sort of real world war, a war of the, of the known world. But what is not known, what remains a mystery, that that question mark in history is what, who were the enemy? What was the enemy? Where did they come from? Who were they? Uh, there's different theories, and that's explored in The Last Odyssey, is what, uh, what that force might have been, where they came from, where they might have gone. Because after they, they came in vanquished those three mighty civilizations, they vanished again. So as a mystery writer, I'm thinking, or a thriller writer, I'm thinking that's you know, great fodder to explore in a novel. So you're going to find some... Uh, some of uh, the actual history about that period of time in the last Odyssey, and also a bit of uh, my imagining of, you know, what, you know, filling in some of those blanks using my own imagination. Um, so from your publicist, I've been cued in that your next book is called The Savage Zone, and it actually deals with viruses. Exactly. That's about bad timing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is there anything you can share kind of in light of our current situation about that book or your thoughts on? A couple, a couple things. Um, again, I remember when I was, again, Savage Zone is almost all done. I'm trying to put that one to bed. So uh, when I was, this was all current, I think, oh, how unfortunate, you know, I, it's too bad this book's not coming out now. Mm-hmm. It's all about viruses. But I thought, no, probably people don't want to read about, uh, you know, horrible viruses while this is going on. You know, my book is, I hope to be a bit of an escape. It's a big armchair adventure. If you can't make it to Europe anymore, you know, you, this is a little way of having a little armchair vacation. But uh, The Savage Zone is not, a, it's not a pandemic novel. I mean, there's some implications, of course, it could become a pandemic, but it's not a pandemic novel per se. Uh, but it, in some ways it's even scarier than a pandemic because I did a lot of research, talked to a lot of different virologists and, and scientists about the, uh, the strained biology and evolution of, of viruses. And that book's going to, uh, it's going to be very, very, fairly creepy. And I'll give you just one scientific tidbit out of that, that I discovered is that it, and at all points, uh, we are continually being rained down by viruses. Viruses actually are, are cast into the air 
and spread around the world, and they, they, they're continually raining down. For every square yard of the Earth, over the course of one day, 800 million viruses will land on that spot. Wow. Just to give you some of the idea of the ubiquitousness of, of viruses. So, uh, but again, I don't want to tell you too much more than that because there's more to come. Yeah, and it's very scary too. <laughs> um, so a lot of your books have to do with sort of um, technological advancements, both and how they affect us, both good and right. bad. Um, so what, I mean, can you give me kind of a sense of where you think we're going in the right direction and what kind of scientific advancements that we have going on might particularly frighten you at this time? Well, I, I definitely... That is my, my bread and butter. You know, that's mm -hmm. what I love to explore is besides that historical mystery, those pieces of history and the question mark, the other thing I'm always looking at when I build a novel is that bit of science that makes you go, what if, where's that headed? How is that going to challenge us? So I'm always looking for those, those threats. And I did a novel just recently, actually not recently, maybe four years ago, that dealt with a viral pandemic. It dealt with the fact that things can come loose, get loose out of these labs. And now I was just reading today that the intelligence services are investigating whether the, uh, the COVID-19 actually was uh, possibly uh, escaped out of a, a lab in Wuhan, that maybe it wasn't the wet markets uh, in that city, because the wet markets in that city are right next door to that same lab. So there's some controversy whether the, uh, that virus would have escaped. So I always like looking for those scientific explorations that would become threats. Now, obviously, it's fun to build. I can build a big roller coaster of an adventure using the tools of science. You know, I can make, you know, these, these sudden drops and turn the twists to, to, to get the reader's heart pounding. <clears throat> but me as a writer, the more exciting thing is to, to look at how that's going to affect us, uh, how that challenges us, not just from a, uh, a physical standpoint, but also a moral standpoint. You know, how is that going to change our outlook on, on, on the way we're going to look forward? I mean, how, let's look at what's going on right now. How is this going to fundamentally change everything after this event. And we, I believe we will survive it just fine. I believe there will be a vaccine that will develop. I believe there will be uh, antivirals that will be effective. This will be a thing of the past, but it's imprinted on us. I don't think we'll ever get back to the same thing we were before uh, February. I think the whole world's changed and that's the thing that I love to explore is, is not just the threat like we're experiencing right now of something of, of scientific origin, but where are we left after that? Right. Right, I hear that we are done shaking hands forever. Yes. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> when Dr. Fauci says, you know, that we should not be, we should never be shaking hands from here right. on out, which right. is, I don't know. If that's that's all we give up, then that's great. I'm fine with that. <laughs> so, um, we recently hosted Steve Barry, suspense writer Steve Barry at the library, yeah. and he let us know that you are a character in his new book. Are you aware of this? I am very aware of that, yes. <laughs> I'm the president of Poland, apparently, using yeah. my real last name, Tchaikovsky. So, yeah. yeah. So, weird reading that book because, you, know, you know, every time I'm flipping a page, you know, there's my name, there's my name, there's my name. So, it was very distracting <laughs> reading it. Yeah. Well, I guess just the, um, that idea I've noticed um, with suspense writers, especially um, in the mystery community, there's a really close, supportive bond between both the writers and friends like you and Steve, but also the readers and the writers. Um, you know, if we were here in the library tonight, we'd have a whole crowd. I'm sure many people there would have read all your books, probably know the characters better than you do. Probably. Um, people with huge stacks for you to sign with all the doodles. So how has it felt to have a really long, successful career in that kind of community? And do you have any reflections on that? 40, 30 books? 
I first started writing, I did not think this was going to be a career change for me. And I love being a vet. I still love being a vet. Uh, I love animals, love medicine, love science. I like the times I get to go in once a month and do a spay neuter clinic. But uh, my goal when I was writing was just, I just wanted to walk into a bookstore and see my book on a shelf. That was my only goal was to walk someday into a bookstore and see one book. Well, this is my 34th book in total. So now I walk into a, you know, a bookstore and you know, I've got the shelf now. So that is, it's weird. It's hard to believe that I've, that, that I've written, A, that I've written that many books and B, that I'm here at this point in my career. Um, and when I first started, I had a website and that was weird and unique and no author had websites before. I was cutting edge because this was before social media, before we had any real outlet like, like that. A few authors were doing blogs and things like that, but it was, it was relatively new. And even then, while readers could email you, it, it, and certainly weren't mailing you very many letters anymore, like, like in the past. I remember I was speaking to um, David Morrell, who wrote uh, First Blood, that became the Rambo movie. Mm-hmm. I asked him, oh, David, in the olden times, when you first started publishing, what was it like? He said, oh, well, we would do nothing. You, we would be lucky. We would do maybe like a little launch party at the bookstore, and that was it. Then you go back and write. And so nowadays, you know, with social media, it's, it's, you have to be, you know, it's a lot of the, the promotions are, are put on our shoulders and we have to go out there and, and uh, massage social media and be active and, and uh, it's very time consuming. Um, but at the same time, it's, we've never had that relationship that we had in the past with readers. Now in my Facebook time, I'll, I'll, I'll put like, these are my three ideas for the title of my next book. I can't decide, you do, you decide, and I'll put it out there. Uh, I'll say, you know, hey, you know, at the end of this book, Gray is with some unknown woman. Is it Gray or is it Seishan? Let me know. And so a lot of times it's, you know, I love getting that feedback, bouncing things off so I can get a better idea of what those, that readership is interested in, uh, what seems to be catching on with them. Well, we never had that immediacy before, so... It's, it's even though there's a lot of work involved in social media, it's, it's very satisfying that you get to maintain that relationship much more intimate with your readership than you ever had in the past. And speaking of interacting with his readers, coming up, we'll hear questions submitted to James Rollins during this live streamed interview, including one question about how he gathers facts for his books. I like doing research to a fault in that it'd be very easy for me to keep researching a novel and never writing it. Sure, it might be easier for somebody else to do my research for me, but I, I don't like to do that because I will go looking for some factoid that I need for a story that I think this is what I, this is where the story's going. And in the path to try to discover that fact, I find something even more fascinating and interesting along that route. And I would have missed that, that what I discovered on the journey to that information. Research, hobbies, putting his peers in his books, viruses, and his love of animals are subjects we'll touch on as our talk continues with James Rollins on Talking with Authors from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. 
Well, I am getting some questions now from the audience. So Susan Wheeler wants to know, are any of your main characters modeled after yourself or anyone you know? Well, I don't think anybody, any author, draws a character out of, out of thin air. You know, we're drawing upon aspects of ourselves. We're drawing upon people we meet in life, friends and family. Um, so everybody's sort of a, a, a composite of, of, of different aspects. Is there anybody that's particularly like me? I always jokingly say, you know, I wish I was like Commander Gray Pierce, you know, this guy that can think out of the box that, you know, always seems to, to, to be both, you know, that scientist with the mind, but also really skilled with the gun. But I'm probably, if anything, more like Kowalski, you know, a little, the dimmer bulb of the group, uh, but maybe some deep down secret talents that nobody knows about. Uh, so I don't think anybody's specifically based on me, but aspects of me are in all my characters. What about people that you know? Have you ever like Steve Barry put a friend of yours in the book? Oh yeah, I mean, I get that. I get that. Even in this last, even in the last Odyssey, there was a gentleman that approached my foreign a, foreign agent and asked, you know, if if he donates uh, to a charity group, will I put him in my book? I said, all right. So I did. So he's uh, this character named Howard Fine. He's mm -hmm. in the book, and he's a uh, he. That's why. But I always tell people, and Howard Fine will discover this too if he ever reads the book, is that, you know, if uh, I put you in the book, I'm going to kill you in a horrible, horrible way. <laughs> Be prepared. So, uh, you know, I always tell people, if someone dies horribly in, my, in one of my books, you know, really horribly, they're probably a friend I know. <laughs> Payback for some little thing, yeah. Oh, just for the fun of it, just to talk to them. <laughs> So we were talking um, before we got started about your career as a veterinarian. You were a vet for many years before becoming a internationally best-selling suspense writer. So, and you often work unique animals into your books. So is there a unique animal in The Lost Odyssey and what's been your favorite kind of animal to play with and work into your stories? Well, I think it's poorly kept secret. There's a lot of dogs in my books. <laughs> Not that I'm a dog person. I love cats just as much, uh, uh, but uh, you know, they always hold a special place in my heart. I've done a whole series based on a military war dog where I wrote scenes from the dog's point of view. I use my background in behavioral sciences and talking to a lot of the handlers of those dogs. For The Last Odyssey, there is a, a, an appearance of a, a sign language speaking monkey. I mean, sorry, sign, sign language speaking gorilla, but also a, uh, an endangered uh, uh, monkey that's also featured in the book. There's always going to be animals in my book in one way or the other. Yeah. All right, so Linda Sanders wants to know, what are your thoughts about including a lovable llama in your next adventure? I, I know Linda have... very well, and she, okay. she's definitely a llama fan. She's got some beautiful dogs at home, too. Hi, Linda. Uh, you know, I don't think I've ever had a llama in the book. I'm trying to think if I ever put a llama, because there, there was a book that took place in, um, excavation took place in Peru. I don't think I actually had llamas, so... That is a good idea that I will need to, uh, if I'm looking for the next animal to put in the book, will be some llama sidekick of, the, uh, of some character in there. So we have The Savage Zone coming out, and that's another Sigma Force novel. Do you have um, something that you're working on beyond that? And are there any books that you're working on that are not in the Sigma Force series? Um, coming out, actually even before The Savage Zone, coming out this fall, I believe in September, is an anthology. It's uh, all my short fiction that I've written over the 20 years I've been writing. 
some of them are hard to find. Uh, they're A, out of, out of print, or they were just e-formats that had vanished into whatever e-zine they were originally published in. So we gathered them all into one volume, um, but it, I did new introductions to all the short stories because I thought, gosh, this is interesting. Because even when I was collating them, I thought this is sort of like a, a look back at my career uh, from when I you know, first was writing short stories till, till the short stories I just wrote recently. And so I do these new introductions both as a way of uh, charting a path through my career, you know, explaining you know, why I told this short story, uh, you know, why this next one was way more significant. So it was fun to look at back at my career by doing new intros to all those short stories. But I also didn't want to say old stuff. So included in that anthology is, is a new uh, novella. It's a, it's a big novella. It's about, I think about 100, 100 pages long featuring Tucker Kane and his military war dog Kane. Mm -hmm. So they were turning for their own, uh, you know, mini novelette of a story. So that's, uh, I'm very looking forward to people reading that because I'm going to tear your hearts out. So just be prepared for that. Um, otherwise, I'm also working on a, a new, you know, I've, I've written two books a year, every year for my entire career. It's always been a thriller of some sort, whether it's Sigma or standalone, and then something else. You know, I've done uh, co-authored books that were almost a horror genre with Rebecca Cantrell. I've done a middle school series. Uh, so right now I'm actually working on a fantasy, which back very early in my career, I was doing a fantasy and a thriller every year. So I'm sort of returning to those roots a bit. I'm working on a, a fantasy that's coming out in, I believe the summer of 2021 called uh, The Starless Crown. And so uh, it's fun stretching my literary legs by doing something different besides just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, so I'm getting more and more questions. This is fabulous. Um, Cynthia Ritter wants to know when we'll see a movie or TV series based on your books. Well, uh, the entire Sigma series has been optioned. So wow. they're currently working on it. They renewed the option on that just a, a bit ago. So, um, which I think is an optimistic sign. I think if they didn't have any hope that this was not going to become a, an actual greenlit project, they wouldn't have renewed it. So hopefully that's an optimistic sign. But authors are oftentimes at the low man on the totem pole. Uh, I suspect that if it becomes a television series, the first time I'll know about it is when I see the commercial. So, you know, <laughs> but as soon as I hear anything, I'll, of course, let everybody know. Great. Um, okay, so Greg Rogers wants to know where you got the idea of the underground crystal dome in Sandstorm. Where I got the idea for that? Um, for some reason, I'm real fascinated with geodes. You know, those, those big, big rocks, they crack them open, mm -hmm. it's covered inside with jewels. Yep, so I've been, collecting, I've been collecting geodes for ages. And so when I was writing Sandstorm, which is the prequel to the Sigma universe, um, I wanted you know, to, to have a, them walk into the, you know, a, a cave-sized version uh, of, of that in that book. So it was just a personal fascination of mine. You know, I wrote Subterranean, my first book. It takes place almost entirely underground in a cavern system two miles underneath Antarctica uh, because I, I was an active caver. I still, I still do some caving, but, you know, I always tell writers, you should write from a point of passion. You should write what you enjoy to read, but you should also write to enjoy what, you, you know, what you like to do. So I loved caving, so I wrote a book about caving. And so in Sandstorm, I just love geodes. So I'm going to have people walk into the, you know, a cave-sized version of a geode. Great. Um, so Naomi Morrison wants to know if you do all your own research for your books. I do. Um, I like doing research um, to a fault in that it would be very easy for me to keep researching a novel and never writing it. I almost fell into that, that trap with Sandstorm. I uh, kept researching and researching and realized I'm not putting words on paper. 
So I, I since then made a commitment to myself that I was allowed to do my big research. By big research, it's the, the big historical notes, the big scientific notes, the big details and location uh, for 90 days. And on the 91st day, have to start putting words on paper. And sure, it might be easier for somebody else to do my research for me, but I, I don't like to do that because, and this happens every single book I write, is that I will go looking for some factoid that I need for a story that I think this is what I, this is the way the story is going, whether it's this history or the science. And in the path to try to discover that fact, I find something even more fascinating and interesting along that route that I would never discover it if I just said, hey, you know, you assistant, go out and give me that factoid. They would just come back with a factoid. Mm-hmm. And I would have missed that, that what I discovered on the journey to that information. So I, I will always do my own research. That said, I'm a bit of a lazy researcher. I love to call people up and ask them things. So I like the immediacy of getting that information right from the horse's mouth, so to speak, especially when it comes to the science. Science changes very rapidly. And I want to keep my novels as topical as possible and as current as possible. I certainly don't want to write a novel. And by the time I finish that novel, find out that you know, whatever science I was basing on was wrong or is now out of date. So I, I, when I'm talking to a scientist, I say, don't, don't tell me what you wrote in that last journal article that's three months old. You know, turn around and tell me what's on your lab table, what's on your, on your work desk right now, because I need that immediacy before I begin writing a novel, because it's going to take me about a year before that novel ever sees the, a bookshelf. So I need to be as, 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 as uh, cutting edge as I can. And again, I don't think I can get that information if I send an assistant to call up that person and ask them that, that, that information. I think it comes better if it's from me. And getting to know the scientists must be super exciting in terms of it is I mean, a whole network of people of course all different yeah. aspects of the scientific community i'm surprised what they'll tell me sometimes it's like oh don't, am i allowed to put that in print <laughs> um okay so katherine burgess says i've noticed a continuing thread of the use of jasmine as a sensory image and i've been so curious about it what's your connection to it and does it have any tying symbolism between your books and characters Jasmine. I've been using Jasmine just as a, as a, a set marker for Seishan. Uh, Seishan always says I use a lot of Jasmine-related uh, uh, senses when I describe her. Um, and mostly, you'll see that a lot. There's certain, certain aspects of, of each character that I, that I repeat just to sort of reinforce whether it's a sense, whether it's a color, whether it's some detail of their, of their um, personality, like uh, the director of... of of Sigma Peter Crow in Black Order, he uh, had a, a, a bad event that ended up turning a lock of his hair white. Mm-hmm. Now he's also uh, half Native American, so I always have a tendency to refer to that as like an, uh, like a, an eagle's feather tucked behind his ear, uh, so that I can somewhat just sort of reinforce that that Native American heritage of that character. So uh, you know, I'm always looking for a little what I call telling details, and Jasmine is the telling detail for Seishan. Okay. A very observant um, question. Um, okay, so Cynthia Ritter again, she says, um, since you mentioned you recently wrote a book concerning viruses, in your research did you come across any interesting information on all of the viruses being found in the melting glaciers from the Arctic and Antarctica? That does play a role because there, there was, um, again, this is an, is, it's not a, a virus, anthrax is a bacterium, um, that there's a lot of, of, of diseases that are trapped in ice that get released. Like, like there were some reindeer that were affected with anthrax and the melting released the bodies of these reindeer and then infected the village that was uh, in that area. So um, 
I always, again, even in this book, I, you know, ongoing theme of my novels, I hate using that word from English lit, is, you know, nothing stays buried forever. You know, you know even in, uh, in this novel, I mentioned that the melting ice of Greenland has exposed an old Cold War era missile base that was in Greenland. It eventually got over what was abandoned. Ice swept over it, got buried, but now with the melting, it's re-exposing it, um, which is, of course, uh, what hazards might be, biohazards, what type of, uh, if there's anything nuclear there, it just raises all questions about you know, what might be unleashed from all that melting ice. Mm-hmm. Besides the physical thing of, of uh, the permafrost melting and releasing all the CO2 that's trapped in the permafrost, and increasing the chances of uh, contributing to the greenhouse effect. Yeah, great. All right, well, I think we are almost out of time, but I always have one question that I like to wrap up with at our live events, and I think it's especially important right now, but what are you reading, and do you have any recommendations for great quarantine reads to see us through? You know, I've got a pile of books over here that I did another talk about uh, uh, books that I did a talk about books that influenced me, books that I always recommend. Uh, That's why I had, you know, book here um there's one author i always recommended every signing he owes me royalty i'm just waiting for him to give me his part of his royalty checks since the beginning of my career i've been recommending this author the author's name is dan simmons um he's got a little more notoriety because he was the author who wrote um the terror that became an amc series but uh prior to that uh, uh he's an amazing author and he writes uh, similar again i'm a little envious because he writes across a bunch of different genres you know he writes uh, you know, a mystery, he wins the Edgar Award. He writes a science fiction novel, he wins the Hugo Award. Uh, this novel right here, Song of Callie by Dan Simmons. Um, this won the uh, Horror Writers Award when this book came out that year. It is probably one of the most horrific novels you'll ever read. I'm not sure you want to read it right now. Uh, <laughs> but do at some point, you know, jot it down. Uh, great writer, uh, always envious of, of him. Um, Growing up, I read a wide gamut of different genres. So, you know, I loved fantasy and science fiction, but I love horror. I love mysteries. Give me a good spy thriller like Daniel Silva, Interview with a Vampire for the Horror, Stephen King, The Shining. I also love novels that take you to a different place of history, a different location. So this is another one that's a Shogun, Jim Clavell. So... What I'm reading right now is the second book in a fantasy series. It's called The Wise Man's Fear. Um, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I hope that we can get you back in person next year for another library events. I think you've been there every year for the past five or six. So yeah, it might be top of our lineup. You know, barring any new viral outbreaks or mutation of this virus or any other world catastrophes, I will be out there. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this. Thank you. That's number one New York Times bestselling author James Rollins as we spoke with him in April of 2020 about his latest book, The Last Odyssey, by publisher HarperCollins. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media, Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host of the video version of this program was Carrie Robb. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Christina Chastain. 
ATC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking with Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing was by Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.